Amen. Lord, it is. Lord, it should be that we're at a loss for words when we contemplate the greatness of who you are. And Lord, and even in our prayer time, Lord, that we would listen as much or even more than we speak. Lord, that we would come before your throne and we would desire to hear from you. Lord, we desire that right now as we go to your word. May you be our teacher. We want to hear your words, not the words of men. May you be glorified. May lives be touched. May we be exhorted. May we not walk out of this place the way that we came. May we be refreshed and encouraged, Lord, in our walk with you. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 2, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Uh, Quick announcement. After church, if you feel like helping out with these new chairs, we stack them in stacks of eight. So if you're standing around afterward and you just want to make a stack of eight, then the guys at the end can scoop them up and take them out to where we store them. That would be a blessing. That would be helpful for us. Uh, If you went to the men's retreat and... uh, your tapes, are, the CDs are here, so just go pick those up after you leave um, the, of all the teaching and the workshops and everything, and you paid for those with the retreat, so just help yourself, and God bless you. All right, Judges chapter 2, continuing our, again, our verse-by-verse study to the Old Testament. And as we saw last week in our overview of this book of Judges, this book records the struggles that Israel and its various tribes had in taking charge of the land that God had already given them. The big battle was over. They had knocked down the mighty fortresses. But God had still commanded each of the tribes to go in and inhabit their land. Joshua's emphasis was on going into the land. And Judges' emphasis is on staying or enjoying their time within the land itself. We enter into our relationship with God by faith. And we enjoy it through obedience. Now, some people struggle with that. How do you know? It's either grace or it's holiness. It's either faith or it's obedience. Which is it? It's all of them. Amen. The truth is that we enter into the relationship by faith. It's by grace that we're saved, not of works. Right? Lest any man should boast, we're saved by faith, by grace, not our works, by by what He's done, not by what we've done. But as we've been born again, we are now to walk in holiness. Joshua is that picture of entering into God's highest, into that spirit-filled life. And now Judges is the picture of how we enjoy that life, how we have that life and live it and have it be fruitful. And we do that by being obedient. As you and I enter in by faith into salvation, we enjoy that fruitful life by walking in obedience. The word Judges, if you weren't here last week, just real quickly, don't think of a guy in a black robe with a gavel in his hand. Because really the Judges here were more like deliverers. Along the lines, in a different way, but along the lines of like a Moses. Because we're going to see some of these judges are people like Samson and Samuel and others who God's going to use, Gideon, who God's going to use to come in and deliver the people out of a place of rebellion, out of a place of bondage to the people within the land into a bondage that they've put themselves in. As we talked about, the book of Leviticus oversees one month. Judges, 400 years. 400 years of time we're going to go through and in the next five months or so, as we look at the book of Judges. And in each case, we're going to see this cycle. It happens seven different times in Judges. And there's a reason that it's so repetitive, because you and I struggle with the very same thing. First off, they start off serving the Lord. Then they succumb to sin or temptation. Then they become enslaved by their sin. Then they feel miserable about their sin. Then God delivers them from their sin, only for them to start the cycle all over again. And some of you can probably relate to that. Now last week we talked about the, the consequences of compromise in chapter 1. 
Guys, when we compromise in our faith, there are consequences every single time. And we saw that some of the ways we can compromise is by adding to the Word of God. This is what the cults do. They take God's Word and put their own add things to it. We don't need any more books than the one you got in your hand. Amen? That's it. There's a completed revelation in your hand. There are no more books coming. We've got them all. We need to read them. By following the world's example is another way that we compromise. Guys, we're not to follow the world. We're to follow the Lord. We'll talk more about that tonight. By failing to finish the job, by dwelling with the world, and by removing, refusing to remove the enemy from our camp. And we'll see that again in the text tonight as well. So I titled the message tonight, if you're a note taker, this probably will not be a title that will attract people. It's just not going to. Sometimes I think of the title, I think no one's ever going to grab that CD if they read that title. There's just no way. But you know what? Being a man who's not in the seeker-sensitive mode in any way, shape, or form, here's the title anyway, amen? And the title is Thorns of Disobedience. Now that's probably one you want to add to your library, I'm sure. But Thorns of Disobedience. Now what am I talking about? In Genesis chapter 3, we see that thorns and thistles were curses that came from the sin of Adam and Eve. It says in Genesis, then, Adam, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, of saying you shall not eat it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you came, and dust you shall return." So just as Adam and Eve's sin had consequences, so do the children of Israel's, and so does yours and mine today. Because they sinned, there were thorns. There were no thorns until there was sin. There were no weeds until there was sin. All right? You know, we know that the serpent had legs until Satan used them, and down in its belly it went. And so things changed when sin took place. Men started to die. Nothing died before there was sin. Lions were laying down with lambs before there was sin. All of that changed because of sin. And the thorns of disobedience, I titled the message again because we're going to see the same thorns of disobedience coming into the lives of the children of Israel. And then in the end, we'll have an application for us as well. The good news is, is God is faithful to His promises. If you're taking notes again, the first point we're going to make is that God is faithful to His promises. And the promise is both to redeem and restore those who repent, but also He's faithful to discipline those who who are walking in disobedience. While repentance does indeed produce restoration, so too rebellion produces discipline. People don't like to hear that. I didn't come here to hear I was going to get disciplined. I'm not, I'm not up for that. Tell me how great I am in God and tell me how much He loves me. And, but don't tell me that my sin has consequences because I don't want to hear it. But here's the truth. Whether you hear it or not, sin has consequences. Amen? And the truth is that There are thorns of disobedience. There are, as we're going to see in tonight's text. So again, if you're taking notes, first we'll see that God is faithful to His promises. Then we'll see that sin and rebellion does indeed have consequences. So God is faithful to His promises, both to restore those who repent, but also to discipline those who are walking in disobedience. He's faithful on both ends, and they're both, as we'll see tonight, acts of love. We'll see the difference between sorrow over sin and true repentance. So we'll see that there's sorrow over sin, but there's also true repentance. And then fourthly, we're going to see that we need to pass that truth on to the next generation. Guys, we need to, God is faithful to His promises. Sin and rebellion has consequences. 
There's a difference between being sorry and repenting, and we need to pass the truth on to the next generation. We'll then finish out, and don't take no, you don't have to write this in the thing, but we'll finish out by looking at the pattern for the next 400 years. It's going to see it all in this chapter. We're going to see the pattern as it begins. We're going to go through it for the first time, and we're going to see it for the, next, the rest of the book. So let's begin looking at thorns of disobedience, going from victory to weeping. And we're going to see this, that it begins by showing that God indeed is faithful. Look at verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, the angel of the Lord, the word there in Hebrew means a messenger of God. The, when you see the angel of the Lord in the Bible, it is always Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ. People struggle with that. Well, how can Jesus... This is hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. Guys, if you didn't know already, Jesus always has been. He's not a created being. He didn't come into existence, you know, when he was born in Bethlehem. He is Almighty God, made manifest in the flesh. So this is a theophany, the Lord showing up. Now, when the Lord shows up to speak in the Old Testament... It's significant. Now, the Bible's always significant. Every word is significant. But when the Lord is showing up, get ready. And the Lord is showing up to speak to the children of Israel because something significant has been going on and He needs to talk to them directly. Just so you know, I'll give you some other examples in case you're a, a Bible student who loves this kind of stuff. I'll give you four or five other examples. There's many, many more where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. In Genesis 16, He shows up to speak to Hagar about her son Ishmael. In Genesis 22, he speaks to Abraham just as he's about to sacrifice his son. It says the angel of the Lord stopped him and provides himself a sacrifice. Wow, who's that a picture of? Jesus is speaking and he provides himself a sacrifice because it's on Mount Moriah, or Mount Moriah, Moriah, depending on how you pronounce it. It's the same mountain where Jesus later would die on the cross. Nothing happens by chance in the Bible. In Genesis 48, Jacob refers to this angel who redeemed him from all evil. In Exodus chapter 3, it says that the angel of the Lord spoke to him from the burning bush. So who was in the burning bush? That's Jesus. And when, in Judges 6, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon to encourage him to go to battle. In Judges 13, he appears to Manoah to announce to him he's going to have a son named Samson. In 2 Kings 19, I find this interesting, the angel of the Lord shows up and wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. Our God's an awesome God. Amen? You plus God's a majority. In Daniel chapter 3, who was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That's Jesus again. And there's many other places, and we can see him in virtually every chapter, that our Lord always has been, he always will be, and we celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead, proving himself to be God this coming Sunday. Now, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. Gilgal, if you remember, is a very significant place in Canaan. It was where the children of Israel first went and reconsecrated themselves to the Lord. It's where they ate their first Passover in the land. Again, Passover being a picture of the cross, the blood of the lamb in the shape of the cross. It's also the place where the men were circumcised unto the Lord. It's where the tabernacle was kept. Again, that's where God's Shekinah glory dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant, right? It led them through the wilderness. Well, now it's where it initially was stationed in the land of promise. It's where the children of Israel came to reconsecrate themselves after every single victory. And it was the place of sacrifice, again, where God's presence dwelt. So it's not 
by chance that the angel of the Lord would come up from Gilgal. Because that's where God's presence was dwelling at the time. And he came up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, Bochim means weeping. Gilgal means victory, and Bochim means weeping. The place where the tabernacle was and the sacrifices were made, people would say, that doesn't seem strange to me, that you would call the place of consecration, the place of circumcision, the place of, of sacrifice, victory. But guess what? That's where the victory comes from, through the shed blood of our Savior. And that's what it's all a picture of. So that's the place of victory, but Bochum means weeping. So he comes down to the place of weeping. Guess where weeping's going to be? Weeping is the place where man is doing things his own way. When we do things God's way, it's victory. When we walk in Him, it's victory. When we do things our own way, it's weeping. Lord came from a place of victory to meet them in a place of weeping. And He said, I, have, I led you up from Egypt. How do you know this is the Lord, by the way? People say, how do you know it's the Lord? Angel Lord. Who led them up from Egypt? That would be the Lord, amen? I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. Who swore to their fathers? That would be the Lord again. Amen? And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Do angels make covenants? Answer is absolutely not. Only God does. This is God speaking. This is Jesus Christ. Now notice how he starts. He starts off by saying, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. The first thing the Lord did was remind Israel of his love for them and his faithfulness to them. That's how he began. He's getting ready to get after them for their disobedience, but before he does, and I think it's a great model for parents. I really do. Matter of fact, the guys in the office know when they're in trouble when I start out by going, you know, you know, you know I really love you, right, bro? Like, oh, what did I do? Bro, you know I love you, right? Oh, you know. But the truth is that that's the way our Lord is. He begins by letting them know, I love you guys. I brought you out. I, I will never break my promises to you. Never. And before God ever calls us to obedience or confronts our sin, He reminds us of His great love for us. I will never break my covenant with you. God is eternally faithful to His promises. In His covenant, God promised to bless Israel if they obeyed Him and to discipline Israel if they disobeyed Him. Guys, that's a picture of the cross. The cross of Christ is either the place of redemption or the place of judgment. It's up to you. See the place where you were saved and redeemed and forgiven, or it's the place when you stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day where you will be judged for your sin and rejecting the work of the cross. So again, the same is true in the covenant God gave to Israel. It was either going to be a, something that would bring them great joy as they obeyed or would bring them discipline. But in both cases, it was a sign of His love. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars." Their covenant must be with God alone. Guys, our God is a God who desires that He, we, he alone is worshipped. We live in a country today, in a society today, in a church age today, where it's politically correct to encompass all religions as being one. Now you need to be more tolerant, pastor. I've been told that many times. You need to be more tolerant. You know, maybe, you know, it's Muhammad for some and Hare Krishna for others and Buddha for others. And, you know, we just need to be more accepting of all faiths. That is the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. It's so foolish. Think about it. People believe in reincarnation. 
And people believe that appointed for man wants to live and then to die and then the judgment. But we should just encompass them both as being true. One plus one is nine and one plus one is two. Let's just put our arms around each other, sing kumbaya and believe them both. You can't do that. The truth is the truth whether you believe it or not. And there's only one truth. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. And here's the point that's happening here is that there's this move. Again, I just read an article in the Sentinel on Sunday. But we're so tolerant of anybody. You can believe whatever you want. Just come on down. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And you know what? That sounds so politically correct. And it sounds so gracious. But it is so tragic. Because people are dying and going to hell without Jesus Christ. And the worst thing we can do to them is tell them you're just fine. Just as long as you believe really hard in whatever you believe in, you're going to be just fine. And the Lord's saying here very clearly, don't make any covenant with any other God. Guys, we don't put anybody close to our Savior in significance or importance. Amen? He alone is God. He alone is Creator. He alone is the Alpha and the Omega. You know what? He alone rose from the dead. There is no Resurrection Sunday in Buddhism. There's no Resurrection Sunday in, you know, the the Muslim faith. There's no Resurrection Sunday in any other belief system other than the only belief system that's true, and that's Christianity. Man, Pastor Dave, you're so narrow. You know what? The Word of God is narrow. And I'm glad it is, aren't you? I'm glad that we're not, well, there's one of 5,000 ways. I just hope I picked one of the right ones. I'm glad. There's just one simple way of knowing God. Their covenant must be with God alone. They were to have nothing to do with either the pagan people who dwelt within the land or the false gods that they served. He tells them there, make no covenant with the inhabitants and you shall tear down their altars. Tear them down. Deuteronomy 7 says, and when the Lord thy God shall deliver you, deliver them from before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. He said, kill them all. That just seems unfair. Remember again that God had graciously given people opportunities to be saved. His judgment is always just. And he says, if you leave them alive, you're going to fall into the trap. This is bad company corrupting good morals. You start hanging out with unbelievers, you're going to become like them. And he says, don't be involved with them. Then he says in, in Deuteronomy 7, 5, But this you shall, thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. You and I today, we cannot serve two masters. Choose today whom you're going to serve. If you have false idols in your house, and we'll talk about them as we move on in the text, False things that get your eyes off of God and put your eyes on something else. It's time to break those idols down. It's time to break those altars down. That's what he's telling them. You cannot serve God and the false gods of this world. The Bible tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We must never try to serve God and the false gods of this world at the same time. You know what, guys? You'll be trying to, you know, one foot in the world and one foot in heaven, and you're going to be doing the spiritual splits, and you're going to get hurt. You can't do it. You need to choose today whom you're going to serve. God is, a fa- is faithful to His promises, both to bless the obedient and redeem the repentant. And he's also to, decide, to discipline the disobedient. So He's faithful to bless those who repent, redeem those who repent, and discipline those who are walking in disobedience. But remember, those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. Now look what it says, the second point, that sin and rebellion does indeed have consequences. 
but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You have disobeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Can you imagine if the Lord showed up at your house? You just got done like screaming at your wife or whatever. This Choose the sin, okay? And you just did it and the Lord just appeared in your kitchen and just said, you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? What's the answer to that question? I got nothing, right? I think you drop to your knees and say, forgive me, Lord. Amen? And so here's an opportunity for repentance. Why have you done this? What what were you thinking in today's terms, right? What's up with you? Are you out of your mind? Why are you not listening? Why have you done this? They had not done as God commanded, but rather just the opposite. Instead of wiping out the altars, they entered in, instead of wiping out the people, they entered into covenant with them. Remember last week, the end of the chapter, each of the tribes left the people there and said, as long as you pay us taxes, you can stay. Kick us down a little money. It's like the first, you know, mafia, right? I mean, <laughs> kick us down some money and you can keep your altars and you can have your place to stay and you can stay in our, you can stay in our territory as long as you kick us down a little money first sign of extortion right and the lord said no wipe them out and instead they decided they knew better than god they allowed their altars to remain and they made sacrifice and then allowed them to sacrifice unto them and sadly the same continues today again in a politically correct world where we try to incorporate all of the world's beliefs in one system you know what while it may be politically correct it's spiritually bankrupt Why have you done this? So blatantly have they transgressed the commandment of God. He revealed the wickedness of their hearts and their ingratitude to all He had done for them. The Lord, you know what, guys? The Lord sees everything we do. You might be able to hide it from man, but God sees it. And you think, maybe sometimes you think if if there's been no consequences, God's not watching. God's watching. He's just being gracious and merciful. And you know what? God's grace does not equal God's permission. And your sin will surely find you out. Just ask my kids, I'll tell you. Now here's the truth. Look at it. They place their desires over God's command because he said, why have you done this? Why have you done it? And the truth is that we typically do it because we're more concerned about our comfort than God's will. We're more concerned about what we want than what God desires. We basically are telling God, I know better than you. I know you've given me a plan, but you know, you don't live in 2006 and you don't quite understand how things are today. I've had people tell me that. Well, we know more about the Bible than Jesus knew. How did a guy tell me that? Well, Jesus was living. The Bible wasn't even done yet, so we know more about the Bible. Hey, I don't even know what to say to you. We know more than God about anything that's done. That's the original sin. That's, that's what got Satan kicked out of heaven, right? You're out of your mind. And here's the thing. Why have you done this? Because we think we know better than you, God. I know what your word says, but I'm doing it my way anyway. Lord, I know it says do not be unequally yoked, but he's really fine. So I'm marrying him anyway. You know, I, I know, Lord, your word says not to do this, but I just really enjoy it, so I'm doing it anyway. Guess what? Then the consequences come. We want to blame God. God, why did you let me have... Why, why is my marriage a disaster? Did I tell you to marry him? No. Okay, well... I'm praying for, you know, hey, I'll, I'll intercede on your behalf, but you know what? You need to get right with me now. And too often, we make the mistake, we get outside of God's will, and then we blame it on God when it falls apart. 
He says, why have you done this? Well, Lord, because we thought we were more important than you. Lord, because we thought we were wiser than you. Lord, because our ways are better to us than your ways. That's the true, th- that's the true answer, isn't it? Why have you done this? And then he says, therefore I said, because you disobeyed, I will not drive them out from, from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side. You know what? Because you disobeyed, because you wanted the people there, because you wanted to get taxes from them, because you chose to disobey me, and regardless of all of the the warnings I gave you and the word I delivered to you, okay, fine, I'll leave them there. And you know what? They're going to be thorns in your side. Don't look at your spouse. All right? I saw a few of you. Yeah, thorn in my side. There he is, right here on my right side. But the point is, Jesus announces he will allow the work of possessing the land to go unfinished. Why? Because they thought they knew better than God. He said, you think you know better? You know, eventually God will just give you your way. Do you know that? We will stomp our foot so long and tell God what we want. Eventually he'll say, fine, okay. You have free will, go ahead. And you're going to find out it's not a rose, it's a thorn. You're going to find out that thing you thought you wanted so badly, you thought was going to be the answer for everything, was something that God was trying to keep you from because He loved you. You know, we often wish that God would do the work of Christian maturity for us, but guess what? The Lord wants us to be involved in the maturing process. And part of that maturing process is obedience. It's saying, okay, Lord, I trust you, I believe you, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to obey you, I trust what your word says, I'm doing it. I don't understand completely, but I trust you. Sometimes God's going to grant us a miraculous deliverance, and we praise Him for that. But more commonly, He requires us to go through difficulty that we might grow through it. Again, if we thought God would do it anyway because they disobeyed and God was just going to take care of them anyway, they were wrong. And the same is true for us. If we step out of what God really has for us, and we expect God to finish it anyway, you're wrong. It says that they shall be thrones thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Undealt with sin and temptations become strongholds and thorns. If we don't deal with it, if we don't bring it before the Lord, if we don't come repentant, we will deal with it later. Undealt with sin and temptation become strongholds and thorns in our side. And this is a fulfillment of what God had promised earlier. Back in Numbers, He said this, If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those who you let remain will be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall harass you in your land where you dwell. Is that pretty clear? He says if you leave them, they're going to be irritation to your eyes, they're going to be thorns in your side, and they're going to cause nothing but problems in the land where you dwell. And then the people got there and said, oh, let's let them stay. We'll get some money out of them. Maybe we can have them work in our fields a little bit. And again, compromise leads to so much difficulty in the Christian's walk. So first thing we saw is God is faithful to His promises. Then we saw that sin and rebellion has consequences. Now we're going to see that the difference between true sorrow and repentance. Between sorrow, you know, surface sorrow and repentance. Let's take a look at verses 4 through 6. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Okay, that's an inappropriate response. The Lord says, okay, because of what you've done, I'm leaving your enemies here, and they're going to be a thorn in your side. And their gods are going to be a snare to you. 
and the people started to weep. You know, if the Lord shows up and tells you you're in trouble, weeping is appropriate. But here's the thing. We're going to find as we move on that true repentance is more than weeping. Sometimes we weep just because we got caught. I got four teenagers. That's the usual response. Why are you crying? Because you got caught, right? The truth is not repentance, brokenness, wanting to turn away from it, but just bummed out that they got caught and now they're going to lose some privileges. This is really the heart of what's going on in Israel, and we'll see it as we continue on in the text. The people's response with all its emotion, while it appeared hopeful, we're going to see is not sincere. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Another appropriate behavior. If you've disobeyed God, go to the place of sacrifice. For you and I, when we've broken the heart of God, we return to the foot of the cross in that sense, right? We come back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, restore us. Lord, make it right. And they bring the sacrifice before God because that is the right thing to do. But we're going to see the major thing that doesn't change is their behavior. Guys, if we go before God and say we're sorry, and we weep because we've been caught, and then we walk away as soon as we get out from under it and go live the old behavior again. I remember a girl I had in youth group in Southern California. And four, diff- four times in four months she thought she was pregnant. And she kept coming and saying, Pastor Dave, I know I've sinned, but I think I might be pregnant. You need to pray for me. And then she would find out she's not pregnant, and guess what? Right back to with her boyfriend. Then she'd come at the end of the month and pray. Lord, I, I blew it, but God, you know. And then right back, I'm like, you're not repenting. This is sorry because you think something might, bad might happen. My parents are going to find out. But you know what? God already knows. And the point is that weeping, if it's not followed up with an action, is meaningless. In their day, offerings of bulls and rams, for you and I, we come to the cross. And true repentance is a matter of the heart that manifests itself in an outward action. We can be sorry about the consequences without truly being broken on the inside about what we've done. You can weep outwardly and show repentance without ever inwardly repenting. It says in Joel, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. You know what? Our God wants to forgive you. He wants to. Nothing He wants more than to forgive you and restore you to right fellowship. It is wonderful indeed to see God, to see people weeping if, they're, if they truly mean it. But one tear of repentance is worth more than a torrent of insincerity. How could God's chosen people whom He had delivered and led and blessed and provided for so quickly turn away to the false gods of Canaan? How could they so quickly turn away? Look at the next section. We're going to need, because there was a a lack of passing the truth on to the next generation. Look what it says. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. We just went back in time, didn't we? Didn't Joshua die back in chapter 24 of Joshua? Yes, he did. Now we're going back in time, and he's reminding them of what had happened, what had brought on this behavior. He's hearkening back to the death of Joshua when the tribes had gone in to possess the land. And look what it says. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So in all the days of Joshua, the people served the Lord. Now, isn't this a gracious way of putting this? 
Because we were with them through Joshua, weren't we? And didn't they blow it quite a bit? What's the answer? But it says they, that he served, they served all the days of Joshua. You know what he's talking about? They didn't serve false gods during the days of Joshua. They blew it. They didn't go in and possess the land like they should have. They made some mistakes. But never did they, in the entire time that Joshua was with them, ever one time serve false gods. So they were faithful in comparison to the generation he's addressing here. And then it says, not just the days of Joshua, but all the days of the elders. Everybody who had seen the mighty works of God, that entire generation followed the Lord. Verse 8 and 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the board of his inheritance, timnath Harris, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. At the time of, of Joshua's death, notice the title they have for him, the servant of the Lord. Can there be any greater title for a man, woman, or child on this planet than servant of the Lord? It's only applied to a few people in God's word. Moses, David, some of the prophets. And we're, we see this repetition again inserted to give the reader the reasons why he's going to bring such a great rebuke. Because we're going to see it in the next verse. The previous generation and its leadership had served the Lord, but something changed. And we're going to see why it changed. Those who had a vivid recollection of what God had done, obeyed. But as soon as you take God out of the equation, people start walking their own way. Take a look at verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, when everybody had died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which He had done for Israel. Now, one generation... The next generation did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. God was someone who their parents related to and did things for their parents' generation. Guys, true Christianity is not something that is caught through our bloodline. You've heard me say it many times, God has no grandchildren. You know what? Every one of us must come to a place where we have our own personal, intimate walk with God. And, And... The world today, no doubt under Satan's direction, is doing everything it can to remove God from everything. Is that true or not? Take God out of, the, out of the schools. Get the Bible. Do you know that when our country was founded, the only way you got public funding was if you taught the Bible? That is an absolute fact. And now if you teach the Bible, they will take your public funding away. Man, as our country swung. You know, in the courthouses, take off. You know, we better take in God we trust down. We better take down the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. That, you know, you're inflicting your belief system on me. And I don't understand that. But take it down. You know, the ACLU is trying to get in God we trust off of our money. We're trying to take God off of everything. Take Him out of schools. Take Him out of, out of the courthouses. Take Him off the public square. You can't have an activity scene in the public square. Because you're infringing your religious beliefs. Boy, they're lucky I'm not president. Because I'd be infringing religious beliefs all over everybody. Amen? They'd say, well, don't we have the freedom? To, yeah, we got the freedom to be a Christian nation. How about that? You know, we're so worried about being politically correct. We're letting people believe a lie. And we're apologizing for the truth. You know what, guys? They can take God out of school. They can take Him out of the courthouse. They can take Him out of the public square. They can take Him off our money. But guys, they can't keep you from teaching your kids. Amen. And that's what we need to be doing. How come that next generation didn't know there was a God and didn't know all that God had done? Some parents have dropped the ball. 
Don't wait for someone else to teach your kids the truth of who Jesus Christ is. That's your job. Amen? We will help you here in the children's ministry. The youth pastor will help you. But dads, it starts with you. God's called you to be a spiritual leader. Teach your kids. The number one place your wife should go for biblical counsel is to you. Often I'll have women call me at the office, and, and, and again, I'll answer any question anytime, but I'll, I'll sometimes say, have you talked to your husband? Well, no. Well, talk to him. Not because, not because I'm passing the buck, but I want to help nurture in the family household that the man is the spiritual leader. I just assume, you know, if your wife has a question, husband, you call me, I'll, if I can, I'll give you the answer, then you go tell her, it's okay. The point is, let's nurture that kind of a relationship and let's be the spiritual leaders in our home to teach our kids the truth. God had done so many great things. We're to teach our kids daily about the greatness of God and the wonder of our Savior. You know what? Our kids, your kids ask questions or what? That's how God made them. My youngest son, Mark, must ask me 150 questions a week. He's 12, he's still asking questions. We drive down the road, he'll be asking me, why? And, and, and most of them give me a headache. I said, I don't know. Why is the sky blue? I don't know. You know, why, why, what, why, what makes clouds, Dad? Well, evaporation something. I don't know. I don't know. You know, he just asked me questions. But here's the thing. God has given him an inquisitive mind because he also asked me questions like, well, Dad, what does God say about this? What about this? And you know what? Most of the questions, I have an opportunity to talk to my children about the Lord. And we need to be, take those opportunities. The Bible says, train up a child in a way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. One of the reasons that next generation blew it was a generation before was not giving their faith away. Give your faith away. Maybe you're, maybe you're not a mom and dad yet, but you've got nieces, you've got nephews, you've got little brothers and sisters. Next time you go visit your four-year-old nephew, two-year-old nephew, put him on your lap and get a Bible story out and read it to him. Amen? Amen? Let's give it away to the next generation that they might follow the Lord. So we've seen God is faithful to His promises. Sin and rebellion have consequences. We've seen the difference, and we'll see it more as their behavior doesn't change, between sorrow and true repentance. And we've seen the need to pass truth on to the next generation. Now finally, here comes the pattern. It's going to be repeated seven times over the next 400 years. Get ready. Here it comes. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The children of Israel. The days of Joshua, they had not fully possessed the land, but they had never served the false gods. But here we see that there's not true repentance because they wept, but they served the false gods. If you weep and you serve false gods, that's not repentance. That's, I'm sorry I got caught, but you know what? I'm going to do things my own way anyway. I'm just going to do what I want to do. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They followed other gods. The very reason God had commanded they get rid of those people because He knew they would fall for the temptation and start serving the false gods. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Guys, doesn't that happen? We disobey God and then exactly what His Word says is exactly what happens and then we're surprised. Isn't it true though? We blow it, we go contrary to His will and then exactly what the Bible says and then, oh, should have listened to God. Amen? And here we have the same thing. God says, get those people out of there. 
There's something within us, though, that would rather serve a God of our own creation than a God we can't control. Why in the world would they go serve Baal when they've seen, when they've seen the power of the true and living God? Why would you go serve Baal? I don't get it. They bow down to the false gods of this world rather than the true and living God. From the God who delivered them out of bondage, led them, fed them, protected them, defeated their enemies, to the dead God of the enemy they defeated. They went from serving the God who brought victory to the defeated people's dead God. Now before we get too judgmental, we're going to take a look at who these gods represent in a minute and we're all going to go, ouch. Okay? Verse 12. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them and they bowed down to them and provoked the Lord to anger. The Bible says our God is a jealous God. And it angers Him when we turn from Him to serve the very thing that will destroy us because we're His children. You know an illustration I thought of? How would I feel if, if I don't want to pick on her, but my daughter, she's the only daughter I have, so I can't say one of my daughters, i got one daughter. But how would I feel if my daughter came home one day and said, Dad, you know what, I'm moving out and I've decided I'm going to be a prostitute. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go be a prostitute. And you know what? I think heroin's for me. So I'm just going to do heroin and be a prostitute. That's what I want to do with my life. That would provoke me to what? Anger! Why? Because I'm her dad, and it kills me to think that she would turn and give her life over to something that's going to destroy her. This is how our God feels. They're turning away from the God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. The one who suffered and died in their place. And they're going to go serve a dead God who will do nothing but destroy them. It provokes him to anger. This is righteous anger. Nothing grieves the heart of God more than when we turn away from his love to serve the very gods that will destroy us. You know what? When he's angered, it's righteous because he's a righteous and loving God. Now look what it says. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal and Ashtaroth. So let me tell you who these gods were and then we won't feel so self-righteous that we don't serve gods like these. Baal was the god of rain. We'd like to shoot that god right about now, wouldn't we? But he was the god of rain. Now what you... That was so random, I'm sorry. All right. So they were agricultural people. So what do they need for things to grow? Rain. So they would cry out to Baal because if they believed if they got rain and they had favor in Baal's sight, they would have great crops and great crops meant money or wealth, right? So while they were crying out for rain, what they really were crying out for was wealth. So they were serving the God of wealth. Now we're not so self-righteous, are we? Now the second one is Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was the goddess of sex, love, and fertility. And she was usually worshipped by having sex with a priestess who was a prostitute. So the two gods that were drawing them away from the true and living God was the god of sex, love, and romance, and the god of money, or the god of wealth. What are the same things that draw people away from God today? Nothing is new under the sun. Is that true or not? And it may not even just be, okay, some might say, well, I'm not chasing money. You know, if your career is more important than God, yes, you are. 
And again, we do our job as unto the Lord, and we honor Him at work, and we should be the best workers in the building. But you know what? We're not to follow or chase the dollar. We're to pursue God with our whole heart. We're to not forsake the Lord for the gods of personal wealth. What about sex, love, and romance? For some, it's pornography. For some, it's an adulterous affair. But sometimes, it's just being unequally yoked together with an unbeliever because of the romance. You may not have even gotten involved in anything physical yet, but you've put somebody else in front of God. You know, the number one thing I saw as a youth pastor, and this is why I will not let my kids date, period. Pastor Dave's opinion, I'm going to get in trouble, I always do. Every time I say that, I can't take my kids to your church because they want to date and I believe in it. So You can believe in it, it's okay, God bless you, and I'll be here to counsel you after it's over, all right? But here's the thing, here's the thing. I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I never saw one teenage couple that honored the Lord for many years and then got married. I never saw one, and I saw thousands that brought about destruction. Thousands. It's a fact. You know, at the very least, here's what happens. The girl that used to sit in the front row like this in worship, she now comes to youth group going, oh, he's here today, I got him. I look really good for him. You know what I mean? And she's more worried about him than the Lord. The guy's doing the same thing. It's Wednesday. I get to see her. You know, instead of I'm coming to worship God, I'm coming to check out the women. And I'm telling you, it's so tragic. And again, I want to encourage you that God has one. I believe God has one person for you. And I believe in courtship to marriage. You're not getting married when you're 14. So why in the world are you putting yourself in that environment? makes no sense to me. I, and if you leave the church, I'll still love you. I'll see you at the mall, hug you. God bless you. It's your pastor day's opinion, all right? Just how I think, all right? And I got, four, people used to say to me, you think that way because your kids aren't teenagers yet. I think that way more now because my kids are teenagers. <laughs> You're out of your mind. So they were provoking the Lord because they forsook God for the false gods of rain which brought about wealth, and the false gods of sex, love, and romance. And guys, we can be drawn away from God by romance. We can be drawn away by, from God by love and sex. We can be drawn away from God by the pursuit of wealth. We need to be very, very careful. Israel forsakes the Lord and falls into idolatry. That's the first part of this repeated cycle. Okay. Now the second thing is God's wrath comes upon them. Look what it says. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. God will not only not allow other gods into our lives, but he then will allow us, when we choose to serve the false gods, when we force the issue, when we say that's what we want to do, eventually he'll just let us have it. And the consequences will follow. And the consequences of leaving them within the land was that they no longer could defeat the enemy. Guys, there's coming a time, if you leave the stronghold of sin in your house, there's going to come a time where you just keep falling to it. God says, just get it out of there. If you're struggling with pornography, get rid of your computer. But I need, no you don't, not that bad you don't. Amen? Put a filter on. If you're struggling with alcohol, don't move next door to the liquor store. You know, use some wisdom, amen? Have some godly accountability where your struggles are. He says, get those altars out of here. And he says, but if you leave it, you're going to come to a point where you can't defeat it anymore. 
The enemy's going to run right over the top of you now because you chose to dwell with them. The hand of the Lord, it says, was against them. The power that once protected them was now a power that was against them because of their disobedience. Now, guys, we're in the new covenant. God is never against us today. You understand that? Can I make that real clear? When we disobey, is God against us? What's the answer? Absolutely not. He's still for us. Now, I want to say this. Does our sin have consequences? You better believe it. Okay? And God will discipline us, but not because He's against us, but because He's for us. He will discipline us to draw us back into fellowship because He loves us. Why do you discipline your kids? Because you're for them, not because you're against them. Amen? You know, the, uh, we have a thing, we don't use it as much more than getting older, but I have a board in my house, and paint, written on the board is the Board of Education. And, you know, God gave them a nice round area right here, and it's okay. The Bible says that, that, that the rod will drive disobedience far from them. I'll probably get in trouble with the police now, because I think it's even against the law to swat your kids. I think that's probably true, but I'm going to be in jail for a lot of stuff then. So here's the point. <laughs> The point is that we need to be the parents and we need to understand that God wants us to discipline. Understand that God does discipline us, but not because he's against us, but because he's for us. But in this case, under the old covenant, it says, I'm coming against you guys. I was walking before you. I was protecting you. Guess what? Now I'm going to bring calamity upon you. But guess what? His desire was the same. He still wanted to allow the calamity to come that there might be restoration. Verse 15 Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. And the Lord said, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. I guess so. If God is against me, distress doesn't begin to describe it. You know, if it says God is angry at Dave, oh, I don't, I don't, no, I don't want that. Anything but that, Lord, amen? And it says that God was calamity against them, and they were greatly distressed. Yeah. But you know what? Sometimes it's that distress that brings about brokenness, that brings about desperation, that brings about true repentance. Lastly, last two things, God's going to send a deliverer whom they're going to reject. So Israel forsakes the Lord. God's wrath comes upon the rebellion. This is the cycle we're going to see. And now God sends a deliverer. Look what it says. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of everything they've done, in spite of the fact that they're serving Baal and Asherah, in spite of the fact that they're sleeping with temple prostitutes, in spite of the fact that they're crying out to the God of rain, in spite of the fact that they're bowing to false altars, look what it says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. In spite of their total disobedience, God raised up a deliverer. You know what? That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? In spite of our total disobedience... God raised up a deliverer. Aren't you glad? We were bowing to every false god. We were serving everything this world had to offer. And in the midst of it, he raised up a deliverer. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods. So in the midst of their disobedience, he sends in a deliverer, and they still won't listen. Who does that still sound like? Jesus Christ. In comes a deliverer. They continue not to listen. They played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of the enemies of all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. You know what's amazing about our God? Think about how much God loves us. 
We shake our fist at him. We tell him, I'm doing it my own way. I don't care what you think. I'm going to bow to the false gods. I do it. The consequences come. I'm in a total wreck because of it. My life is falling apart. I've contracted diseases or whatever else because of my behavior. And then God comes along and delivers me because he has pity on me. Even though I was shaking my fist at him when I did it. What a great God we serve. Amen? He's a God of great mercy. Lord, again, moved with pity. Verse 19, And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Wow. The judge came, delivered them. As soon as he died, they ran back to their old lifestyle. As soon as there was nobody there and standing in front of them, a man to keep them accountable, they ran back to their old way of life. Sometimes when one of my children is doing something wrong, I'm going to ask them, I ask them, did Dad teach you that? Now, I've taught them some things by my behavior that I'm not proud of, okay? But most often, if they're doing something, I didn't teach them. And the sad part is that it wasn't the judge who taught them, it wasn't their parents. They went contrary to what their fathers taught them. They just turned around in total rebellion. And, and, and the word there for stubborn is translated as stiff-necked. They went in their own stiff-necked way. God's going to give them over to their sinful compromise. Look at the last verses. So we've seen again that the Lord is a God of grace. He's given them yet another opportunity. But in the end, He's finally going to give them what they want. Look what it says. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And He said, Because this nation has transgressed My covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded My voice, I also will no longer drive out from before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. God gave the rebellious children what they wanted. He left the enemies. He left the idols. Guys, if you don't want to remove the idols from your house, the Lord will let you leave them there. He'll let you leave them there. If you say, no, this is more important to me right now, God, than you, I'm keeping it. This is my favorite pet sin. I'm holding on to it. God's not going to come down and rip it out of your hands. He wants you to say, Lord, I love you. Take it. Lord, I love you more than anything. Lord, you're more important to me than anything. You know what? Maybe you're here tonight, and before you leave, you come up and pray with one of the pastors, and you confess one of these struggles. You know what? Confession is a great thing. Confession is so, it's a powerful thing. You come and say, here's what it is. Here's what I'm struggling with. Pray for me. Keep me accountable. You know what Satan wants you to do? Keep it in the closet. Keep it in the dark. Don't let anybody else see it and keep... You know what? Sometimes we'll say, I don't want to ever do that again, but I don't want to throw it out just in case I change my mind. <laughs> That's what the enemy will say. Just, well, just leave it over there. Put it away. Cover it up. But, you know. And then a month goes by and you run over there to it. Get in a fight with your wife. I'll show her. And go right back to what you were doing before. That's what the enemy wants you to do. Let's bring it out in the light. Amen? Amen. And you know what? God is faithful. You know what? We've, we're all sinners here saved by grace. We're not going to be looking judgmentally at one another. We're to hold up one another's hands. And then it says in verse 22, so that, the, so that through them I may test Israel. I'm going to leave those nations there that I may test Israel. Whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Disobedience and rebellion has consequences and some of those consequences become a test. Now the consequences there, now what are you going to do? You're going to serve God in the midst of it? Last verse. 
Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did He deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Therefore the Lord left them. We must guard constantly against setting our hearts on sinful things. We may get to the point where God may allow us to keep them, that sin and that bondage in our lives. Israel was living among idolatry and their pagan enemies, and that was going to be a test to them. It was going to be a much more difficult test. Let me close with this. Even in the midst of the most dire circumstances, maybe your marriage has been broken due to adultery. It's still an opportunity for you to turn back to God. Maybe you're, you're, you're going through liver failure because of drug or alcohol abuse. Or maybe you've contracted a sexually transmitted disease because you've been promiscuous. Maybe you're going through bankruptcy because you've been financially irresponsible. Guess what? It's never too late to turn back to God. Amen. He says, I'm going to test them. Okay, I'm going to give you the altars. I'm going to give you the false gods. But you know what? It's a test for you because you can still turn back. You can have it all encamped around you. It's a million steps away from God. It's only one step back. Aren't you glad? Our God is a faithful God. So thorns of disobedience. I want to make one last point. The thorns came initially from the sin in the garden. Then the thorns were in their sides due to their own sinful rebellion. But here's the good news. Guess where the thorns ended up? Jesus took a crown of thorns upon His head. And His blood was shed to restore sinful man back to holy God. Thorns came from sin, and the thorn in the side came from rebellion and sin. And Jesus said, I'll take it for you. And he took all of the sin of mankind and placed it upon himself. So the thorns of disobedience, we've all got them. But the good news is, he'll say, I'll take them for you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, amen? Come unto me, all you are heavy labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our rest is in Him. And may we turn to Him and confess the areas where we've been rebellious and we've brought thorns into our own side. And say, Lord, I don't want it anymore. Lord, I've struggled long enough. I've been doing it my way. Lord, I confess my desperate need for You. So God is is, is faithful to His promises. Sin and rebellion does indeed have consequences. There's a difference between being sorry and truly repenting. True repentance brings about an action. There's a need to pass on the truth to the next generation. May we not fall into the same trap as Israel, who forsook the Lord and fell into idolatry, then had to face the wrath of God. And then when the Deliverer came, they rejected Him, and eventually they were given over to the very things that they asked for. May we instead remain broken before God. May we be men and women who are transparent with each other. Guys, this is not a police station, but a hospital. We don't come in here to have somebody wrap us on a... a, knees with a baton but we come in here and say i've i've fallen short lord help me and as brothers and sisters in christ we should be praying for one another amen let's pray heavenly father we thank you we praise you and worship you for your word and lord i do pray for anybody here tonight that's been been bowing down to false altars in their life holding on to things that they know god has told them to to get rid of father i pray that even tonight they would bring that out into the light confess it and say, Lord, help me. But Lord, even to seek accountability from like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, may we not be judgmental of one another, but may we instead be an encouragement to one another. And so, Father, we thank you that no matter what we've done, that you're a gracious God. That where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And truly, we can take a million steps away from you, but it's only one step back. 
Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that's walked away, they take that step back even tonight. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.